When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. We're also joined by Jean-Pierre Mustier, who's been talking to us about running Unicredit, Italy's biggest bank, and also by the Deputy Treasury Secretary in the US, Sarah Bloom-Breskin. This week, we'll be looking at Unicredit's latest plans to revive its flagging business with a 13 billion euro rights issue. We'll be looking at the implications for Goldman Sachs of another departure from its ranks, that of Gary Coe, the number two at the bank. And finally, a look at cybersecurity on the back of the breach at Tesco and the theft of money from customers and what it means on the world stage as well. First, though, to Unicredit. Martin, there's a lot of news coming out of Italy's biggest bank. Interesting times, of course, in the Italian market more broadly, a lot of uncertainty politically and in the financial sector. But Unicredit seems to have come through all of that. Shares are up strongly on Tuesday on the back of this 13 billion euro rights issue. That's right. It's it's volatile. On the initial reaction to the announcement, shares fell 5%, but subsequently recovered and are up almost 8% at a six-month high. The plan that's been presented by Jean-Pierre Moustier, the French chief executive of Unicredit, who took over Italy's biggest bank in July, consists of two key elements. One is to cut costs, and the second is to sort out its large portfolio of non-performing loans whilst boosting the capital reserves of the bank to cope with the cost of that. Essentially, the whole thing is going to cost just over 12 billion euros, and the bank hopes that the revised plan, which will achieve almost double its return on equity, will convince investors to put some 13 billion euros into the bank early next year through this rights issue. Well, we talked to Jean-Pierre Moustier a little earlier, and we started by asking him what his vision was for Italy's biggest bank. Our vision for Unicredit is to be a simple pan-European commercial bank, which will deliver its unique Western, Central and Eastern European networks to our extensive client franchise. We believe strongly that our clients see us as a local domestic bank in all of the country where we operate, and also an international bank which delivers our networks. And that gives us an unbelievable competitive advantage uh, uh, going forward. We are planning to have a return on tangible equity of above 9% by 2019. We feel this figure is based on very conservative assumptions in terms of economic growth, as well as in terms of top-line evolution. But going forward, I think that the return of equity of banks should be in the high single digit or low double digit, no more than that, because of the pressure of the regulator on one side and the evolution of the overall business model of banks. Now, our vision is to have a simple business model which will lower the cost of equity 
enhance the return on equity on the high single digit, low double digit, will more than match the cost of equity of banks of the future. Another interesting element of the announcement on Tuesday is that Mr. Moustier himself is planning to take a pay cut and tie his potential bonus, which is a kind of long-term payout, to the delivery of this three-year plan that he set out. And here's what he had to say about that pay package. I have asked the board to reduce my fixed compensation and to have no cash bonus during the period of the plan. Because I think it is extremely important uh, that we have a full alignment with all our stakeholders. We are going to have a very large reduction of headcounts in the bank. And at the same time, we want as well to make sure that the contribution of capital by the shareholders is matched by a perfect alignment between the managers of the bank uh, and the shareholders. So reduction of my salary by 40%. No bonus, but uh, only a remuneration based on a very long-term incentive plan, which will uh, be vesting only if we deliver on the plan, and uh, which uh, will be accompanied on my side by a personal investment into Unicredit shares, just to prove that we have uh, extreme confidence that we will deliver on our projections. Let's move on to our second topic of the day, And Laura, you've been looking at the implications of the decision of Gary Cohn, Goldman Sachs's number two, to join some of his former colleagues in the Trump team. Yeah, so there's now a gang of three of them in the Trump team. You have Gary Cohen, who's going to head the NEC. You also have Steve Mnuchin, who's going to become Treasury Secretary. And you have Steve Bannon, who was Trump's campaign manager and will now be Chief Strategist. And while Cohen is the only one going directly from Goldman Sachs to the Trump administration, all of these have at some time worked for Goldman Sachs. Then you also have the billionaire investor Wilbur Ross joining Trump's team as well. It looks like a very Wall Street heavy team and that is somewhat inconsistent with his whole campaign ahead of this. How he was going to drain the swamp, he was going to sever the links between DC and Wall Street and he's now coming under a lot of criticism for basically going even harder in terms of Wall Street talent than any of the previous administrations have. Yeah, it's certainly um, the revolving door is alive and well, should we say. What does this mean, though, for Goldman? Because Gary Cohn's departure comes only a few weeks after Michael Sherwood, another senior lieutenant at the bank and the co-head of the international business based in London, announced his departure as well. Are we going to see a slew of people leaving? And what does that mean for those who are left behind? I think when you talk to people at the bank and people who know the bank well, these are two very big, very important characters who have left the bank. And Goldman is a place that traditionally has quite a strong continuity of leadership. So certainly having two such big figures leave in such a short period of time is going to lead to a renewal, I guess. There are two ways to view it. You could see it as being a renewal in terms of the talent and, you know, people who are waiting for opportunities getting to move up and that all being a very positive thing. Or you could see it as being a bit of a shakedown of the old guard. But certainly the feeling is this is the start of a broader wave of change within the bank. The expectation is that the bank is going to fill any vacancies internally. The bank has a very strong culture of doing that. Analysts do stress that Goldman Sachs has a very deep bench. There's a lot of talent there looking to get up to the next rung. So they expect Gary Cohen's role to be filled by two current executives, the CFO Harvey Schwartz and the co-head of investment banking, David Solomon. So they expect those two to become the co-presidents effectively. And then we expect to see their existing roles filled by people on the rung below them. Then the people on the rung below them step up and it just continues, basically. One other thing, to what extent does the departure of both Woody, as he's known in the City of London, and Gary Cohn 
signals something about the likely ongoing tenure of Lloyd Blankfein, the chief executive. Both those men have been cited at various points in the past few years as potential successors to Blankfein. The fact that they're both leaving, Martin, do you think that means that he's not going anywhere soon? Well, you could read it that way, but a lot of people are reading it a slightly different way, which is that Lloyd Blankfein has run Goldman Sachs for over a decade. He's one of the few chief executives still surviving who came through the financial crisis. He's taken a few hits along the way, not least the Abacus mis-selling affair over subprime mortgages, if you remember. And he's also had some personal issues, health issues. He had cancer last year which he's come through and by all accounts he's fully recovered but you've got to ask whether these two departures of Gary Cohn and Mike Sherwood are the writings on the wall there that maybe they've been told they're not going to get the top job and therefore they're leaving because they know they're not going to be the successor to Lloyd who could be stepping down in a year or so's time and therefore they've preempted that decision. David Solomon and Harvey Schwartz are the two obvious successors Goldman's shares have really rallied very strongly, particularly since the Trump election, and investment banks are doing extremely well. So it is a good time to be getting out almost back at the top. And of course, for Gary Cohn, there's this neat little fringe benefit that you don't have to pay any tax on your many hundreds of millions of dollars of stock that he holds. And it's certainly a very good time to sell those hundreds of millions of dollars of stock. So for him, certainly there's a very big financial upside to doing this. Let's move on to our final topic of the day. Martin, let's talk about cybersecurity. You broke an interesting story this week about Tesco, which some time ago revealed that it had its systems breached and customer money had been taken by hackers. You discovered an interesting reason why that might have been made easier. Yeah, so speaking to rival bankers, I found out that the attack that took place on the financial offshoot of the UK's biggest supermarket group also targeted other banks at the same time, but they were perhaps more resistant to it. And then digging deeper into that, I found that one of the key reasons for this may have been that Tesco Bank issued its debit card numbers sequentially rather than randomly generating them. So that meant that it would be a lot easier, theoretically, for the hackers to just run through one customer after another of Tesco Bank and guess the other two critical pieces of information that would allow them to spend money online from those customer accounts. And those are the expiry date of the card and the so-called CVV security code on the back of them which are pretty quick to guess once you've set up an algo system to just bombard retailers' websites with those numbers. And the reason we know that this is likely to have happened is because the financial regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, contacted all the banks very quickly after the Tesco Bank hack emerged to check whether they were also issuing sequential debit card numbers. So this is revealing that, you know, there is still a lot of work to be done in the financial sector to protect the customers. Now, you've been talking more broadly about those issues on a global level, I suspect, but certainly as they relate to the US with Sarah Bloom Raskin, who's the Deputy Treasury Secretary there. And I think you were talking to her only a few days ago. Yeah, so Ms. Raskin has special responsibility in the Treasury for cybersecurity for the financial services sector. And I started off by asking her how vulnerable the financial sector is to cybercrime. There are good defense mechanisms out there that still can be taken. They're, you know, they're low-hanging fruit, right? Because this isn't extraordinarily challenging 
for a financial institution or a government agency that has financial data to limit. There are ways to limit damage. Sometimes it is hard to detect them. So we have also seen malware intrusions that have, in hindsight, been within systems for upwards of months or sometimes even years before being detected. Then I asked her if there's enough cooperation between banks and their regulators. You're completely right that we want to be at a place where there is cross-border cooperation and coordination. Mm -hmm. Not just in the financial sector, by the way, but cross-sectoral too, because of course you need to engage in these same efforts, not just among financial, sort of the financial pieces, but what about the parts of the infrastructure that the financial piece is dependent on, like the telecoms and energy, right? We've seen blackouts, we've seen attacks focused on the power grid. And if the power grid goes out, then that essentially has effects on the ability to clear payments. G7, you know, the fundamental elements are an important part of how you build that defensiveness. Should we be doing more to develop peacetime norms of behavior? What should those norms look like? And how do we go about building consensus for them? And we know, you know, we know norms have become a vehicle by which we have addressed other worldwide international challenges such as, you know, nuclear disarmament. Finally, I asked if there were any practical steps that banks and financial groups should be taking. Firms need to have the latest patches, they need to be able to patch vulnerabilities when they see them in a timely way. When patches become available, you need to use them. We see the need for two-step or multi-factor authentication, right? Systems should not be so easy to get into, to be able to log into. So we're seeing much more work being done now in terms of multi-factor authentication, and that's good. And then there's this notion of privileged users, right? All firms and even the government sometimes has lists of people who don't need to go through the usual authentication procedures to get into the system, we got to review those lists. you got to make sure that the people who are on that privileged user list, you know, there's not very many on them because those are vulnerabilities. And so you want to, any organization needs to be analyzing those lists regularly and carefully. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio. Uh, thanks also to Jean-Pierre Mustier from Unicredit and Sarah Bloom-Raskin from the U.S. Treasury for speaking to us. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 